0: Chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. May the living word of God speak to us through these words of
1: You'll Remember that last week we started a brand new series about out of context. We're taking five Bible verses that are taken out of context and putting them back in their rightful place. Last week we tackled the metaphor about a camel trying to get through the eye of the needle and this week our one uh, in bold in, in the scripture reading, that's our uh, verse for this week, John 3:16. Last week we discussed how there are four contexts that need to be considered when we take on this kind of a topic. The first one is biblical and I'll remind you that that one kind of asks, what is the passage a part of? Where is the passage in this particular book? What happened before and after? And where does it fit in the larger story of the Bible? And so we consider things like every sentence being part of a larger paragraph and so on. The second context is literary. And that one asks, what type of biblical scripture am I reading? What is the original language that I'm reading? And what does the original intention of a word or phrase actually mean? The Cultural and Historical uh, contexts asks what was happening in the world, what was happening in the world at the time that this was written, what traditions or cultural markers are impactful. And finally, the Theological, it's the fourth one, and it considers the message that the book or passage is trying to give, and it asks who's the author, who was his audience, why did he write, and what theological point was he trying to make in his writing. If you'd like some more explanation about these, this is just a very quick summary of all that we talked about last week, but all of our sermons are on our website, FCCofWestfield.org. You can go there, and there's an archive back through September of um, YouTube videos now that both are the whole service as well as just the sermon, and you can even listen on your favorite podcast. <laughs> They're um, available that way as well. You go to worship in recent sermons. It's all there. But all four of these contexts are relevant for today's theme verse. I think that John 3.16 may be the most famous verse in the Bible. And you might be able to recite it with me from memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. We see that reference, John 3.16, with just those words, John, and then the number three, the colon, and the 16. We see that on billboards. We see it held up in signs and stadiums sometimes. It's even used by companies and retailers. For example, the former fashion giant, Forever 21. I'm grateful to Jenny Jaroszewski for pointing out something that I had never noticed on the many Forever 21 bags that came through my house. And that is that on the bottom, if you flipped it over, the owners had printed on every single bag John 3.16. I'd never noticed it, but I imagine that many others did, and it was this very bright yellow bag that every time someone shopped, they carried John 3.16 with them from the store. Now, the owners of Forever 21 were quoted in a 2019 New York Times article that the verse, quote, shows us how much God loves us, and that the owners hoped that others would learn of that love. And so it's been used in this way, and it seems innocent enough, right? A foundational verse, one that's easy to remember, that expresses, expresses the essence of the Christian faith. And I think it's kind of become a mantra for the Christian faith. And I don't think undeservingly so. It certainly is one of those verses that is foundational and kind of sums up the whole gospel in one nice little concise little verse. And it makes it very easy to quote It also makes it easy to misquote and easy to misuse. It's often used to prove whether someone is in or someone is out, especially when it's taken out of its context. It sets up this sense of us versus them, whether you're in and part of something or out and excluded from it. It becomes about whether you're part of the people who believe what the verse is saying or if you're not. And it's based on that part that whomever believes, that if you don't believe, that there's this sense that not only are you out, so you're not part of my inner circle, but that perishing is in your future. In other words, some go to heaven and some go the other way. A line is drawn in the sand as to whether a person is redeemed by God or left behind. Now, I don't know about you, but if I am pushed, I just don't believe in a God that draws that sharp of a line in the sand, that my entire eternal existence is based on whether or not I believe at the moment that I die, that that moment determines the rest of my eternity. I find it very hard to believe that God, who is at the very foundation of my faith, a God of love, would be so cruel with an eternal existence based on the in versus out of this verse. So let's put it back in its place. The biblical context is, of course, the Nicodemus story. It's not a very well-known story. Nicodemus is not a very well-known character. But in the literary context of John, it's contained in what's known as the Book of Signs, S-I-G-N-S. It's chapters 2 through 11 of the Book of John, where Jesus performs sign after sign after sign. Now, in the other gospels, these are called miracles. They are referred to as miracles, the miracle of a healing, the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And a miracle is a display of power for the sake of showing that that person has that power. And that certainly describes Jesus. However, when it's called a sign, as it is throughout all of John, it's not just about the display of power. But it points to a deeper truth about the one who performs the sign. And for John, that means that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the embodiment of God on earth. So it starts off the book of signs with turning water into wine, that the wedding at Cana. We're mostly familiar with that one. And then right before this, that's the beginning of chapter two, right in the next part of chapter two, right before our chapter three, very, very early in the gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's what it's called, cleansing the temple, when he goes and chases all the money changers out of the temple. And we'll explore this some other time, but it's really important that in the other three gospels, this happens at the very end of Jesus's ministry. But in John, it happens in the very beginning. And so, when I was reading about Nicodemus, I said, Should we read the whole thing? Poor Wally, I'm going to make him read 21 verses about Nicodemus. And I decided yes. <laughs> and I decided to do so because there is so much that happens in this passage. And it's all really important for the context. And I read it because the, it highlights three really important things that guide us as we get to John 3 16. Because that first section of the Nicodemus story really does set up the rest. So, first, the most important thing is of course that it is Nicodemus, that this is what the story is all about. And so we kind of have to ask, who is Nicodemus? Why don't we often hear about him? He's not really important to us, but he actually is a very relatable figure. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee are the ones who were opposing Jesus at the time. And it means that he was then a part of that group of religious leaders that was actively working against Jesus and Jesus' message. Well, why is that important? Well Jesus uses him as an example. He says, I can't understand why you don't understand my signs, that what I've revealed in my signs, which has happened here on earth, if you can't understand that, then how can you understand when I eventually talk about things that are heavenly and spiritual? And it also reveals, Nicodemus, this conversation with him reveals what Jesus means by having faith. Where else does Nicodemus show up? Only twice. Only two other times, not just in John, but in the whole Bible. This is the only time he's mentioned aside from two other times in John. The other time is he actually stands up for Jesus during a heated conflict with the Pharisees. And then after Jesus has died, he partners with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus's body after the crucifixion. Joseph there is called the secret disciple and it kind of begs the question, okay, well, where does Nicodemus now stand? Is he a Pharisee or is he a believer? So there's theological issues that arise in this story, we see a pattern that Jesus does. It happens over and over in the Gospel of John. He starts with this sign, then he has some kind of dialogue with somebody maybe a Pharisee like Nicodemus, maybe his disciples, and then has what's called discourse, which is essentially where he explains what has happened. And so in this particular story, he starts with the water and wine as the sign. Then he has a dialogue with Nicodemus in the first half of our reading. And then he has the discourse, which is essentially Jesus pontificating. I don't mean that in a nasty way, but he's sort of thinking aloud and he's kind of explaining what this is all about. He's interpreting the sign. The second theological issue that we hear about that is very important is this dark versus light. And it kind of becomes night versus day. You see, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of night. Why? Why would he do that? Is it because he's afraid? Is it because he doesn't want to be seen by anybody? Is it because he knows that he'll have one-on-one time with Jesus to actually ask his questions and have a conversation it's likely that it is a connection to the larger theme in the Gospel of John where light versus dark is theological. Light are those who recognize Jesus as the embodiment of God and those who sit in darkness are those who don't. You can see how this is all leading up to our verse, John 3.16. And it sets the conversation up with Nicodemus to be revealing of whether he's in the light or the dark. Where does he stand? Is he a believer or is he not? So when he comes to Jesus in the dark of night, it means that he is spiritually in the dark about Jesus, that he is not yet on board. When he's with Joseph of Arimathea at the end, the secret disciple, is that under the cautious of night or is it out in the light of day? And so then we see this progression of his faith when he boldly does stand up for Jesus in the light of day against the Pharisees. And so there's this constant struggle for Nicodemus of whether he's with Jesus or if he's not. Then also there's this literal versus spiritual interpretation um, of Jesus's intentions. Nicodemus takes Jesus's words literally when he talks about being born from above, but Jesus meant them in a spiritual sense, which is why he said that rebuke about, you can't uh, understand things that I say about earth, how will you understand them about heaven? And so we have this good example of being born again. It's used to to specify in certain circles if you have, quote, accepted Jesus into your heart. Typically more in evangelical or conservative circles, but it is certainly another verse that we could use for our out of context uh, uh, series here because the Greek is actually born again, and that's the literal interpretation, but it also means born anew. It also means born from above, and that is more about Jesus's intention here, spiritual rather than literal. And that now sets up the context for our theme verse. There is so much that has gone on in this Nicodemus story. The second reason that I decided to read the whole thing is because there's a sense of a personal conversation that happens with Nicodemus that then changes into a a more theological musings of a spiritual leader that applies to everybody. And this is where my Greek nerd comes out again. The U, Y-O-U, switches from singular to plural. He starts out talking to you, Nicodemus, and ends up talking to all y'all. <laughs> I don't use that lightly. I kind of wish that we had something like y'all here in the north, but we don't. <laughs> so I could say use guys, but that is a little bit less accurate. <laughs> you see, the part about being born from above is directed at Nicodemus, but the part about receiving testimony of our theme verse, that is plural. That's for everybody. And then third, the reason that I wanted to include the rest is that it sets up the context for John 3.16 in a way that would lose a whole lot of meaning if we didn't read it. Because here is the thing. John 3.16 is one verse. Imagine if there were no verse labels and it was always quoted with what comes next. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That entirely augments the meaning of our theme verse. It's no longer exclusionary. It's no longer us versus them but now it's about the whole world. It is inclusive. And this is that historical and and contextual context. Because remember that when Jesus was alive, it was at a time when people knew of Yahweh that it was this monotheistic God of the Jews. But up until now, God had chosen God's people. But now, God chooses the world. Everyone has life because of Christ. Not, it's not meant to exclude. It's based on Christian belief, but instead meant to show that Jesus opened the way for all people, for the world to be saved through him. In fact, God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, like a so often offensive use of this verse happens, but rather that the world might be saved through him. What a difference that makes when that verse is back in context putting it back in context is about including everyone it's about not limiting who god has access or who has access to god or who has access to god's love because god loved the whole world so what about that pesky little phrase in the middle that whoever believes in him Now, logically, if we think about it logically, you can't be saved by something that you don't think can save. That logically works, that if I don't believe in something that I don't think it can save, then how can I be saved by it? But I don't think that that's the only way that that can be interpreted. You see, John has a very different perspective on belief than even we do, and it's one that isn't literal. Again, going back to Jesus' words, you're taking it literally. How do we take it spiritually? John never uses believe to mean something about our heads, about our brains. Belief happens in our hearts with our lives. You see, John's gospel at the very basis of its theology suggests that belief and faith is always about a relationship with God, about knowing God, but not knowing God up here, knowing God here. It's about knowing God and God's goodness and love and grace as expressed in Jesus' life. You see, his life was given to this world so that we might come to know and believe what a true relationship with God looks like. And so again, it's all about invitation. It's all about opening up God's arms. Belief isn't about who's in and who's out. It's not about that line in the sand, I believe and you don't. It's about how our lives are changed. It's about how our hearts are changed by knowing God. It's about how our lives show that we know God. It's about how our lives are transformed by the one that opened God's presence to the world and invited in everyone from the least of these to the greatest, not to condemn the world, but so that the world might be transformed, so that the world might be changed, so that the world might be saved. So witness to this. Witness to this, to your changed heart, to your changed life, and show the world that the world is welcome. Show the world that the world is welcome that God's arms are open to all, that Jesus was God's gift to the whole world, not to just some chosen while others are left behind. That's what putting this verse back in its context does. It takes away the fear of God's retribution. You better believe in Jesus or else you aren't saved. It takes away the wrath of God's potential punishment. It takes away the exclusivity of some being in and others being out. And instead, it offers us life. It offers us a sign of God's grace. It tells of God's promise. It offers us Jesus as the one through whom God redeems the world. So yes, believe. Believe with all your heart and all your mind and all your life, but don't live in fear. Don't let the misuse of this verse scare you into believing something with your mind. Let the gift of Jesus be a part of your heart and of your life. Because ultimately, living out Jesus' message in our world may very well be the way that God saves it over and over and over again. For God so loved the world.